0: It's Tuesday, September 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Going to see your favorite musical act is getting pricier. Concerts are more expensive than ever, but fans keep paying up. The average price of a ticket to the 100 most popular tours in North America have quadrupled over the past two decades. Lucas Shaw, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for why ticket prices are going up. Next, politicians have been caught swearing since the beginning of politics. But according to a new analysis, the number of swear words used by lawmakers on Twitter took a noticeable jump after 2016. Beto O'Rourke's latest campaign t-shirt even has the F-word on it. J. Clara Chan, media and politics reporter at The Wrap, joins us for when profanity hits the campaign trail. Finally the CIA has declassified dozens of files from its attempts to create secret animal spies. By 1967, the CIA had three programs aimed at using dolphins, cats and dogs, or birds, in secret spy missions. While not the most successful programs, it is an interesting look at how animals are being trained to perform a variety of tasks to help gather intel on the enemy. Paul Hanley, national security correspondent at the AFP News Agency, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Right now, there's never been a greater collection of people that were really more focused, very specifically on the problems that the industry has had around fan identity and how do we advantage fans? How do we give fans a real shot to get access to the best tickets and the best time?
0: Joining us now is Lucas Shaw, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about concert tickets and how they're just getting more and more expensive. And the other side of it, fans are still paying up all that money despite how much the prices are going up. Right now, an average ticket price to the 100 most popular tours in North America is just about $100, which is up from about $25 over the past two decades. Tell us a little bit more about how these ticket prices keep going up.
1: Well, it's most basic level supply and demand where you have a lot of people who want to go and see their favorite acts and those acts only come to town once or, or twice a year, if that. And so you've seen a concerted effort over the past couple of decades to raise those prices. A lot of factors going into that. Part of it is that the music industry saw what happened in sports. Sports kind of moved on this first and they started raising prices to go and see basketball games, baseball games, football games. I mean, you try to get a Laker ticket in LA, those tickets start at like $150, $200. And they said, why not us? There was then the decline of the CD business and in general record sales, which meant that artists were more and more dependent On their touring business And so they felt A little less precious About raising prices Because if their fans Were not going to pay To buy their album Well then they were Going to charge Those fans more To see them live And then you had The development Of a couple of of More modern things One being really Premium tickets And charging for VIP packages And the other being The resale market On sites like StubHub and SeatGeek And because Scalpers were making So much money From reselling The tickets at a higher price It told ticket sellers And it told artists They could charge more There was clearly demand and why shouldn't they be getting the money that was instead going to scalpers some of whom were pretty unscrupulous
0: a lot of times scalpers and other people will set up bots to kind of flood the site to buy the tickets before you can and even if you log in right when tickets go on sale everything is sold out within seconds a lot of times and it's so frustrating because you can't get the ticket then then you got to go to the resale sites and the ticket prices are ballooned even more there
1: This has been a really vexing problem for the music industry for at least a few years, maybe a decade now. There have been some efforts to combat it. There's been some legislation passed limiting the use of bots. Ticketmaster in particular has this product called Verified Fan Presale, where they know based on a user's history, kind of buying tickets and listening, how likely they are to go to see somebody, and they'll invite them to be part of kind of the first batch of people to buy tickets to a show. This is something that Taylor Swift used a lot on her most recent tour. But it's a problem you can't solve perfectly because how diffuse it is.
0: Let's also talk about some of these premium experiences, these VIP experiences where sometimes they cost thousands of dollars and could be, you know, ticket to the concert plus a meet and greet. A lot of times these tickets are available to fan club members. Like you got to be part of so and so's army or something like that to get some advanced ticket sales and things like that. These are the other element of this that's driving a lot of ticket sales up.
1: I think that in particular is what's driving that average price up because if you think about how the math on it works, if you have a bunch of tickets at the top, It'll skew the overall average, even if the vast majority of the tickets are slightly cheaper. And I think what you've seen is, to what you said, some of it is definitely fan clubs and engaging superfans, And some of it is also just taking advantage of the fact that there's some really rich people out there who will spend kind of any sum of money if it means that they or their child gets the best seat in the house or gets something signed or maybe gets to go to a meet and greet.
0: You profiled in your article a pink super fan and they started saving money well in advance of any concert just in the preparation for when it did go on sale they would be able to go and meet the prices that were going to be out there. So Bex
1: Paul is a 32-year-old woman who lives in London. She fell in love with Pink when she was a teenager, went and saw her first Pink show in 2002. She paid £11 and has in the years since then seen Pink close to 150 times. At the end of the most recent tour, which which wrapped in early 2014, she and her girlfriend set up a separate bank account called Pink Fan, and they just started saving money wherever they could. By the time that Pink tickets actually went on sale, they had saved more than £6,000, so about $7,000 and they used that to buy tickets and travel and all that for 17 shows. They end up going to 11, but they bought for 17. She said it paid for all but the last one or two. They had to get some money for friends, but she was honestly just happy that she did not have to go into debt.
0: Gone are the days of when you hear, hey, somebody's playing at the local club nearby and you can buy a ticket and just go. Now you have to plan this stuff months in advance, get the advance notice, wait in that digital line to get all uh, your tickets. And it's just a crazy world and it's getting more and more expensive and increasingly harder to see the people that you really love.
1: Yes, although the experiments in recent years with really jacking up the prices to try to kill the resale market does make it easier in some cases to get tickets to these shows because some shows aren't selling out quite as far in advance. Like This is not going to apply for like the hottest act on tour right now. Billie Eilish, who's shot in the stratosphere this year, I don't think it would apply to go and see her. But somebody like Taylor Swift, even last year with her tour, because they were pricing so aggressively and because she's not quite as all powerful as she used to be and she's playing in these massive venues, her shows would not sell out way in advance, and you could usually get tickets pretty close to that date. So I think there is a little bit of a silver lining in that sense that yes, for a lot of acts, you need to sign up on day one, and even then, to your point about bots, you might not be able to get tickets. But with certain groups, you can still get tickets at the last minute. It just depends on who it is and sort of what stage of their career they're in.
0: Lucas Shaw, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Not sure how many gunmen,
1: not sure how many people have been shot, don't know how many people have been killed, the condition of those who have survived, don't know what the motivation is, do not yet know the firearms that were used or how they acquired them. But we do know this is...
0: Joining us now is Jay Clara Chan, media and politics reporter for The Wrap. Thanks for joining us, Clara. Hi,
2: thanks for having me. We're
0: going to be talking about an interesting topic. When profanity hits the campaign trail... We're noticing this a little bit more in recent times, how some of the candidates and just politicos in general are a little bit looser with their language. And you're getting some F-bombs here and there, especially from Beto O'Rourke in recent times. He actually has a shirt that he released through his campaign, says this is effed up, and it's all about gun violence. But tell us a little bit about this, Clara, just in general, how we've been noticing more profanity.
2: Sure. I mean, there's actually some data to back this up as well. There was this government research company called GovPredict, and they've basically been looking at the use of profanity by lawmakers on Twitter. And so accounting for words, sort of like, excuse my language here, Sort of things like that, they noticed that in 2019 specifically, there's sort of been almost 1,900 times politicians have sworn on Twitter. So there's actually numbers to back up this sort of sense that what we're seeing from lawmakers is an uptick in profanity.
0: That was just (laughs) this year. In 2016, that number was 193. And it doesn't seem like a lot, you know, 1,900 times that lawmakers have sworn compared to all the other swear words you constantly see on these platforms. But these are politicians, these are lawmakers, these are people who are held to a different standard for the most part, people look up to them, things like that. So it is kind of jarring when you hear or see them use this type of language.
2: I do think though that, language norms over time naturally evolve. And I had a great conversation with this cognitive science professor at UC San Diego, and he sort of specializes in cursing scholarship. And he sort of pointed to three sort of different factors as to why we might be seeing sort of this uptick in political profanity, if you might call it that. So obviously, the first one is, as time goes on, People view language differently, and obviously it's subjective to each person and their own, own sort of personal beliefs. Right. But recent studies have found that, at least for our younger Americans, run-of-the-mill quote-unquote profanity is sort of deemed as less offensive to, say, like millennial and Gen Z generations than perhaps it was to boomers or Gen Xers or things like that. And so for politicians who might want to you know, appeal to a younger demographic, not censoring themselves might... Make them seem more appealing to younger voters. And so, just to clarify, though, what run of the mill swear words mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of related to three different areas. So, there's profanity related to sex, which could be a word like f- bodily function, so things like, sh- and then religion. And by that, we mean things like holy.
0: You can see that happen over time, these run of the mill swear words, as you're mentioning. And you notice it in TV, the word. Big is like easily tossed around in most shows that are appropriate kind of across the Mm -hmm. board, at least with these parental ratings. That's one of the main words that you've noticed kind of just ease its way into the normal lexicon. So you definitely see that all over the place. And then on social media, you were talking about how some of these politicians might use it to make themselves a little more approachable to the younger crowd. On social media, though, it's kind of this weird combination of informal language because you're talking directly to your constituents, your people, but it's written out there, so it's always going to remain there, so you can always go back to see it.
2: Especially when it comes to tools like Twitter, for example. As you were saying, it is sort of the strange, both informal, yet formal in the sense that it's written, so anyone can go back to it. I think that's different from what happened in the past with the politicians, because before, what you would read from a politician would probably be in a formal format, like a book or in a letter or a newspaper or something like that. So certainly there's more informal modes of communication that right. politicians have been using in recent years lends this informality to the way that they want to speak with their constituents. And with that, perhaps more inclinations to use profanity.
0: What are some of the other reasons we're seeing that this is creeping up a little bit more?
2: This ties in a little bit with sort of the Twitterization of political discourse. And I think we can't ignore sort of the role that the current president has had Mm -hmm. in using Twitter, obviously, as a main platform to release policy statements, to talk to his constituents, to also throw insults at people. And so I think Trump's language was sort of setting a new norm for what was acceptable or allowable in political discourse for politicians. So I think that's certainly another factor that we've been seeing as contributing to why politicians might be more informal and using profanity in public statements and things like that.
0: Jay Clara Chen, media and politics reporter for The Wrap. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
3: What the CIA documents show is how meticulous they were in planning and thinking out all the kinds of problems they had, but you still couldn't solve everything. Like what happens if the animals just went away right. I and mean, the, the pigeons sometimes would fly off in tests and never come back with the expensive camera. Joining
0: us now is Paul Handley, national security correspondent at AFP News Agency. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. We're going to be talking about some fun stuff. The CIA has declassified details of its secret Cold War spy pigeon missions and declassified other documents dealing with how they were using animals, potentially training them to conduct other clandestine missions for the government. I think there was uh, things that involved dolphins and dogs, ravens, all sorts of stuff. Paul, start us off. Tell us a little bit about what the CIA declassified.
3: Well, it's been known for a long time that they experimented on animals in the 1960s and 1970s. But they let out some details of the kinds of animals they were using, what they were using them for, some of the targets. And it was really interesting. We've known that pigeons have been used in uh, war and in spying and messaging for a couple thousand years. Right. Even the Germans started to try to use them for taking pictures in uh, World War One. But the CIA wanted to take that a lot farther, and they wanted to... Mess around with a lot of other animals and see what they could do.
0: A lot of these programs weren't necessarily the most successful. I know some they tried right away, like they tried to do mind control with dogs. That one didn't really go anywhere. What do we know about some of those? The mind control
3: thing, I guess it was a little controversial. The CIA didn't let out all the documents from the programs, but it was clear there were some dog lovers who raised questions about animal rights during it. But then they wanted to see if they could plant some kind of electronics in their brains and then control them to go on missions. And they tested them to go along a path, but it really didn't tell you what happened with that. I think maybe it was sensitive and maybe it really didn't work. Another thing they tried to do, though, was with cats. It appears they wanted to see if they could put some listening devices on cats or even the mind control thing and see if they could just let them loose, wander through maybe an office or someone's home and transmit signals about the discussion. They also didn't describe what happened with that, but I imagine they found out what a lot of people know is you really can't train cats.
0: A lot of this uh, does center on the birds. Obviously, the pigeons was one of their main focuses. I guess they had a a lot of success with that, but even still, some of those programs died off after a bit. With the pigeons specifically, they would outfit them with little cameras, and a lot of times, maybe half of the pictures that they were set up to take, you know, surveillance type pictures, about half of those came out okay, and the other half did not.
3: The CIA was investing a lot of money in small cameras and uh, high-speed film the best stuff you could get and outfit them on pigeons. And, of course, as the cameras got better, you could get better pictures, and that was ideal. And they had a whole range of possibilities for that. But what they shifted up and tried other birds, they spent a lot of time collecting some birds of prey and ravens and crows. They wanted to see how they could train them to carry cameras, also to drop off things or to do simple missions. With the Ravens, they wanted to see if they could have one, deposit a listening device on a windowsill outside a room where presumably there were Russians or someone uh, talking, they could get some information. And they experimented on that. In one case, they sent the Raven off, and he dropped the listening device, but it was the wrong windowsill, <laughs> even though they were using lasers to point off. In another one, they said it in Germany. They sent it off, and the Raven did the mission, and then the listening di- device didn't work. What the CIA documents show is how meticulous they were in planning and thinking out all the kinds of problems they had. But you still couldn't solve everything. Like, what happens if the animals just went away? Right. I and mean, the, the pigeons sometimes would fly off and test and never come back with the expensive cameras.
0: They even named the most promising raven that they were working with, Doodah. But that one, unfortunately, fell to the attack of other ravens.
3: So they had this camp on an island offshore California. And they had a whole slew of birds. They had some hawks, some falcons, and they had this raven they named Duda. And they were seeing how far they could go and perform a mission. So they'd take them out on a boat and see if it would fly back to the island. Then they'd go out on the boat and see if the bird would fly to the boat. And increasingly, they were expanding the distances from a quarter mile to a half mile to beyond a few miles to where the boat couldn't be seen. And they were getting pretty good results. They had problems. A couple of falcons just off and, up and died on them. One hawk got something on his feet, uh, some kind of infections, and he was out and then he molted and they couldn't use him because his feathers weren't there. All sorts of troubles that you right. might not think of, but they ran into. And then they had this raven, Duda, and... They mapped out. You could see in these documents they really liked it. And they really liked the bird, and they were uh, really making progress. It, you could see in the schedule how many more miles he flew every week and week. And they were really confident that they could get him up to the 13 mile goal that was needed for some kind of mission in uh, Eastern Europe or Russia. And he went oh. off, and they were following him. He disappeared over the horizon. They weren't worried, and then he didn't come back. And it turned out that. He had been regularly attacked by other ravens, and seagulls, and he would figured out how to send them off. But this last time, apparently two wild ravens attacked him and killed him.
0: Oh, poor and they Dada. were
3: really sad. In the CIA, in the material yeah. the CIA release, there's a really nice elegy to it. You can see they're really attached to it and yeah. kind of realize that that could be the end of the program.
0: Paul Handley, national security correspondent at the AFP News Agency. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks.